long years ago, we made a trip with destiny, and now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. A moment comes, which comes but rarely in history, when we step out from the old to the new. It is fitting that at this solemn moment we take the pledge of dedication to the service of India and her people and to the still larger cause of humanity. Hello and welcome to another episode of India Colonized. I'm your host Umar Haq and today I am proud to present our conversation with Professor of Law and History Dr. Rohit Day. Guftagu is a series of interviews with authors and scholars of the subcontinent's history where we discuss their work and its relevance in understanding today's world. We also discuss their journey of becoming a scholar of their respective fields. Rohit Day is a lawyer and a historian of modern South Asia and focuses on the legal history of the Indian subcontinent and the common law. As a legal historian, he moves beyond asking what the law was to asking what the actors thought the law was and how this knowledge shaped their custodian tactics, thoughts and actions. In recent years, this has enabled his research to move beyond the political borders of South Asia to uncover transnational legal geographies of commerce, migration and their rights across Africa, Southeast Asia and the Caribbean. Professor Day's book, A People's Constitution, Law and Everyday Life in the Indian Republic, which is published by Princeton University Press, is the book that we will be engaging with him in our conversation today. We will be exploring how the Indian Constitution, despite its elite authorship and alien antecedents, came to be a part of everyday life and imagination in India during its transition from becoming a democratic republic from a colonial state we will be mapping the use of constitutional language and procedure by diverse groups such as butchers sex workers street vendors and petty businessmen including journalists women social workers and so on and see how it offers the constitutional history from the lenses of the people Dr Rohit Day continues to write on the social and intellectual foundations of the constitutionalism in South Asia Professor Day is also interested in comparative constitutional law and is an associate research scholar of law at Yale Law School. He has assisted Chief Justice K G Balakrishna at the Supreme Court of India and has worked on the constitution reform projects in Nepal and Sri Lanka. And he continues to write on contemporary legal issues in South Asia. Professor Day receives his doctorate from Princeton University where he was elected to the Society of Woodrow Wilson Scholars. His dissertation won the Law and Society Association Prize for the best representing an outstanding work in law and society research in 2013. He was the Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow at the Center of History and Economics and Fellow of Trinity Hall at the University of Cambridge before coming to Yale in 2014. Rohit received his law degrees from Yale Law School and the National Law School of India University Bangalore. Professor Day continues to teach undergraduate and graduate courses in South Asian history, post-colonial histories of India, Pakistan and Bangladesh, on Indian constitutional culture and political thought, South Asian diaspora and migration, as well as courses in global legal history, law 
and colonialism and the legal profession. So here is our conversation with Dr. Rohate on his book, A People's Constitution, Law and Everyday Life in the Indian Republic, published by Princeton University Press. We're glad to have you with us. So before we actually start talking about your book, a couple of biographical questions uh, about your academic and intellectual journey and the kind of people and thinkers that or, or books that have influenced you uh, in your life early on to take uh, that has taken you down the path. Uh, what got you interested in studying uh, legal history of India and law uh, in particular? Um, thanks for your question, Omar. Um, it's uh, a, a series of uh, serendipitous um, sort of uh, events, I think. So I uh, went to high school in India and, um, you know, at the end of school, I had sat for a bunch of uh, entrance exams and I'd gotten into uh, law school in Bangalore. Um, I, I don't think I went there with a sort of deep commitment to, uh, you know, become some kind of legal professional, but... Um, uh, the five-year law school program at that time was, I think, the closest we had to uh, uh, a kind of general liberal arts program, which also convinced your parents you would get a job at the end, right? So it was sort of a happy compromise. Um, and uh, the law school in Bangalore, and, and now there are several across the country, had uh, sort of been an innovation in legal education itself. So they were trying to teach law alongside social sciences to sort of see the relationship uh, between them. Um, and uh, when I finished, I knew I wanted to sort of do research and teaching, but I thought I would do that formally within the law school structure. And I had uh, come to the US to do a master's um, in law. And uh, my sort of major interest there was trying to think about federalism and uh, ethnic uh, conflict and how constitutions become a way of managing them. Um, studying law in the US was brought back a couple of things very sharply. The first, of course, was um, I think um, Americans and, and really a lot of uh, Western uh, legal academies sort of take the law as natural. So there's this sort of idea that, you know, this is our law, uh, our ancestors sort of developed it, particularly with the common law. Um, you know, it's sort of natural place to turn to um, and we can change it, right? And um, I, it, it really brought up a stark comparison because um, the Indian legal system, um, you know, even today, uh, most of it is, um, based on sort of changes that were made under colonial rule. Uh, it continues to function largely in, uh, at least at the level of the High Court and Supreme Court in English. Um, and uh, surprisingly, except in one or two areas, people haven't really made this an issue. It's sort of taken as natural that you work uh, with these rules. So I, I was interested really in the question as to what made this sort of um, um, colonial legal system such a ordinary part of everyday uh, people's lives. And I decided to sort of apply to a history graduate program. Um, uh, and the second factor that sort of narrowed down my interest in, in the constitution was really uh, the kind of moment we were going through. So in the early 2000s, uh, this was sort of peak um, period of uh, Indian judicial activism. Uh, the Supreme Court was described as the most powerful in the world. Um, and interestingly, a lot of um, social and political movements, I'm thinking here of the right to food campaign, um, the right to education campaign, um, had sort of very um, uh, strategically turned to the courts, gotten the courts to recognize certain rights, and then sort of, um, you know, use that as leverage upon the government to pass uh, what is sort of the skeletal structure of India's welfare state. So Narega or RTE come out of these um, sort of legal challenges. Uh, however, at the same time, um, some scholars and activists were also pointing out that what PI had allowed people to do is 
allowed uh, judges to become almost omnipotent decision makers on questions of policy. And while there were important victories in some of these cases and a lot of other cases, uh, what we saw was uh, a certain uh, kind of worldview or preference uh, that dominated how decisions were taken. So again, I, I, you might be, uh, this might be sort of before your time, but uh, in Delhi, uh, there was a moment of time when the Supreme Court shut down the entire public transport system because it hadn't transformed to CNG. Um, and so for about a month and a half, buses weren't running in the city. And eventually they did move to CNG, pollution levels came down. Uh, but what did it mean to shut down public transport for a month and a half, right? Who was affected? Uh, uh, clearly not people who had private transport and what allowed an unelected body to sort of make that decision. So I think these were sort of the questions that were at the back of my mind um, uh, when I started working on, on this book, which was originally a dissertation. Um, and in terms of uh, sort of specific uh, works that uh, interested or influenced me, um, I think, and as you're probably aware, uh, South Asian history has been a kind of rich and uh, exciting area, not just uh, because of, you know, it's a area, it's a, it's a space with a, a, you know, sort of colorful and complicated past, but because this history sort of developed new kinds of methods of trying to uncover some of this, right? So uh, I started um, graduate school at a time when the Subaltern Studies Collective had just wrapped up uh, formally. Um, and uh, I think you'll also ask, okay, so what now, right? We have explored some of these questions. Um, and where do we move from after these questions have been laid out? Um, and I think a couple of directions that uh, were emerging, one was to really think, uh, a lot of the work had really been done in the colonial state and to really think about what difference does independence make um, given that the mechanisms of the colonial state continue. And, and then that question was one that, that, that seemed exciting. I was also fortunate to work with uh, some early uh, legal historians. Uh, Mitra Sharafi uh, is an outstanding figure in the field. Uh, she's also one of the first uh, people who were qualified as a lawyer and then did a PhD in, in South Asian history. Uh, and these were scholars who were really pushing um, scholars of Indian history to take the law seriously, um, not just as a source for information or a source of control, but trying to see how people live and interact with the law. So. Um, uh, and, and to do this, they, they often end up turning to works outside of Indian history. So, um, uh, you know, E.P. Thompson's uh, Wigs and Hunters was a classic. Uh, Hendrik Hartog's Man and Wife in America. Uh, Robert Gordon had this long essay of critical legal histories. Uh, much of it was coming out of uh, the U.S. legal history, legal history field. And I think I and several of the other scholars uh, of my generation started reading this. And um, all of this fed into sort of an interest in uh, post-colonial Indian, understanding the post-colonial Indian state. Uh, uh, so what actually uh, led you to rather choose a deep study of in an academic study of legal history than, uh, uh, you know, take a career in, into being a lawyer, maybe an advocate, like basically pursuing law as a full-time career? You know, this is a question my parents asked me a lot. <laughs> uh, so uh, so I, I think a couple of things. One was, again, um, my undergraduate education gave me the opportunity to sort of intern with uh, a number of different levels of, of legal work. And uh, some I found interesting and, and some I didn't. Uh, but I think the, the main difference was that um, the nature of legal practice is that you are seeking to represent your client, uh, whoever your client may be, a big corporation or sort of a poor uh, a landless laborer. So um, your... Uh, research arguments are geared towards uh, sort of making that particular point, uh, winning that particular case. 
um, it doesn't always give you time for uh, sort of longer, deeper reflection about a system as a whole. Uh, you're often doing the kind of important work of like making sure someone's not evicted. You're trying to sort of make sure someone's out of prison, or you're trying to make sure like uh, you know uh, corporate shareholders are protected. Uh, but you don't have the time to sit back and think uh, uh, longer and more systematically. So I think so I think that was one difference between academia and and and, and all, all kinds of practice. Um, and I think the the uh, second was also. Um, a realization that there are some kind of similarities between law and history. So um, lawyers of all kinds are looking to create a narrative and they're trying to create a narrative based on evidence. Uh, and they're trying to create a narrative for a very, very clearly identified purpose. With historians, the purpose is sometimes more ambiguous. Um, so I, I, the similarities and the skills I think already existed. So it made the decision to move slightly easier. And um, I also felt that, I mean, I don't think I, I've, I've left the legal profession. I, I, I continue to engage with um, questions of public law in India, India today. Uh, but I think uh, there is a luxury of being in the academy that allows me to, to think, respond, and provide resources for, for lawyers and other people working with the legal system that if you were sort of doing a, a fast-paced legal practice, you wouldn't have the time, um, time to do. Well, uh, so given how a lot of people who enter academia talk about the kind of challenges that academia poses, uh, not just for a person to grow with his work, but also the kind of career perspective, uh, prospectives and stuff of that sort. Mm -hmm. uh, w was it a little easier for you, say, because you also were uh, at the same time practicing or, you know, you were into law while at the same time being into academia? Was that some something that gave you a kind of, uh, you know, sit back and relax, probably not worry too much about how academia is going to come to you. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not going to deny the fact that uh, academia, both in um, the US, but also in India is, is quite stressful. A major part of the stress is this kind of political economy of how universities are run. So again, across the world, uh, the old ecosystem of um, um, where permanent university jobs were the norm, uh, not an exception, uh, was changing uh, from the late 90s onwards, uh, and I think in India, maybe from 2010 onwards. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I, I credit anybody's uh, ability to sort of function with that uh, hanging over their head. It's also something difficult to explain to people outside academia that, you know, you can't, um, you don't have control over where you end up. Um, a lot has to do, depends on um, things that are outside your control, like timing, when did you finish, or uh, who was uh, involved in recruiting or when a particular institution advertised the position. Um, in some ways, I was, because I was coming into like a kind of academia from the law school world, I, when I started, I was sort of ignorant of this. So I only became aware of it in my later years uh, in the program. So I guess that was that. Was that. Um, and secondly, because I had um, uh, come to the U.S. as a uh, international student, uh, I was open to questions of location after I finished. So um, I had so that gave a certain degree of of, of flexibility. Um, I think the second part about academia that is outside of political economy is that um, until you sort of start a kind of master's or a PhD program, you always in a system where you're validated through external factors. So you know, you study, write a paper for your class, your professor sort of, you know, validates you. Um, you work in a job, you have a supervisor who tells you, okay, here's what you're doing and, you know, what you're doing is fine or not fine. 
in academia, you have it, it's 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 a very solitary exercise for a long time. Um, you when you write research, by the time what you write research and publish, uh, by the time people start reading it, it's it's, it's several decades past, right? So we're having this conversation today. Um, the book came out two years ago, and it was finished four years ago, and you know it started work on this around um, 2009, 2010. So it's a really long period to wait. Um, to get feedback, to get a sense that what you're doing is of interest to others and is making a difference. Um, and I think the challenge becomes particularly so for history because, say, unlike, um, say, economics or uh, political science, which kind of claim a kind of universal methodology, right? Where, uh, and there are problems with that as well, but the claim is that I don't need to know anything about Africa to read a paper on African economy because I work with these generalizable um, uh, methods. But in history, you know, I mean, I do read works in African history, but I, that requires me to, re, to, to read very deeply, to gain some degree of familiarity with the place. Uh, and also to, to, in many cases, you know, to, to sort of take on trust uh, the work of discovery and, and scholarship that other scholars have done. And uh, this creates the kind of burden even when we do our own writing, right? So it's, um, um, so I think that uh, is a factor that I think all of us um, uh, who do this um, uh, struggle and deal with. And I think the only way we, we are able to manage is because we have communities of um, contemporaries who read our work, who engage with it, um, you know, people who are, uh, who've sort of, who you met in the archives or sort of uh, worked with over a period of time, very often even outside your institution. Well, uh, speaking of the laborious task you've put behind writing this book and how long it takes to recognize it, I'm sure this has been a labor of love. Uh, tell us what, uh, you know, what were your experience while writing this book? Uh, you talk about how you engage with the public and the secret archives of the Supreme Court. Uh, and I'm especially keen on listening to your experiences there and how you were the first, uh, among the first, I mean, the first uh, research scholar to go and have access to those archives. So tell us a bit about that. Sure. So I, I think some of this has to do with how we understand uh, how legal history has developed, right? So, so in India, in the context of India, uh, there were two kinds of legal history being written. Uh, the first was primarily written by uh, earlier by the colonial state and then by um, people in law faculties, basically meant to tell you how did the current legal system come to be what it is, right? So it's very much a internal history. It's very often a kind of sequential history. So first there were Nizamat Adalats, then there was the Supreme Court of Calcutta, then there was a high court. Uh, and it's primary audience apart from law students were people sitting for the civil service exams, right? So you want to know how to do your public administration paper, you read these books. Um, historians, uh, when they engaged with the law and as well a lot of work on it, um, uh, turned to uh, the state archives to find materials in law. And just the way archives are organized, um, so if you go to say the Karnataka archives or the Delhi archives, they mostly have records from the uh, executive and occasionally from the legislature. So what it makes visible really is the process of um, lawmaking, right? So what is the ideology behind the making of law? Uh, what are the kind of debates inside the state around a particular law? In some cases, what kind of public petitions came to challenge or argue against the law? But it really shows you like a state's uh, image of what law should be. Uh, it's a good site to read say, what the ideology of the state is, what dominant uh, interests control the state. Um, and it's not a surprise. So Pindra Bakshi writing a review piece about Indian law in the late 90s said, you know, law in India is the state's emissary. Um, however, uh, you know, when you start looking at um, the courts and other sites like policing, um, 
I suspect there is a lot of work waiting to be done on like commercial transactions that don't come to courts, which show you how it actually operates in, in practice and in the everyday. And, and there you see a lot more of tension, of contestation, of people trying to use these spaces and, and, and push back. Um, and the challenge with recovering this is some of the kind of physical evidence of this still remains inside the district courts and the high courts in India. They've um, very rarely been moved to um, the sort of official site of historical research, the archives. And even when you do access these spaces, uh, I was lucky in that uh, the Supreme Court's records are smaller in number. They're only from uh, post-independence and the better catalogs. So if I asked for a file number, they could retrieve that file for me. Um, my uh, friend and fellow historian Kalyani Ramnath worked with the Madras High Courts and all they could tell her was everything from 1942 is in this room, right? So best of luck trying to find a case. What you can only do is random sampling. Um, and if you do work in the district courts, it becomes even more difficult. I mean, and the documents are there, but they're sort of falling apart. Um, so I think um, uh, I, it, it pushed me to think about like how are legal records used, who they're used for and what purposes they serve. And, and it, it also showed for, to me that, for example, when lawyers look at court cases, um, they're usually looking at the final judgment, the kind of printed decision, and they're reading it for a very specific purpose, which is how is this case useful to anything that we're doing right now? So what is the rule that it established? Or if it established rule B and I want to disagree with it, what context do I have to show that this rule does not work in? So very often the question was like, is this legally important or who won? But if you turn to looking at the actual sort of files around the case, you have a sense of greater contestation, a greater range of opportunities, a larger number of voices and possibilities that exist. And I think I got interested less in the question as to what do the judges do, but why did a particular kind of dispute get framed as a legal or, or, or constitutional dispute? And I think that's what the nature of a public and secret archive is. So, you know, it's uh, Supreme Court judgments are no secret. You can find them on the internet. You just Google it and you know it tells you and there are dozens of commentaries on them, but it doesn't tell you how and why that case come to be, came to be, uh, how can that case be understood at, for that particular moment and what happens to the people who were involved in the case after the, after the judge said something, right? So I think that's what you get from the kind of secret uh, archive in some ways. Wow. Uh, so you also mentioned in the introduction of your book where you say that uh, Indian constitution is a document with alien antecedents that was a product of elite consensus and became a part of the experience of the ordinary Indians uh, in the first decade of independence. So tell us a bit about the social and the kind of cultural history which came about in the making of the constitution, how it was influenced by uh, you know, the fathers of our constitution, the people who wrote the constitution and their kind of approach to it and, and how their ideas were being reflected, while at the same time we were retaining much part of it. Right. So this is a, you know, long and complex question. It's something that I'm working on at present as well. Um, but I can tell you what um, the literature sort of said uh, about a decade, till about a decade ago. So uh, the Indian Constitutional Assembly is an unusual body. Um, in most cases, sort of when the British Empire ended in their particular colonies, uh, the constitutions of the colonies were written either by the British themselves. So, the, you know, if you remember the Simon Commission in Indian history, they would send a kind of commission of Britons who would go there, talk to some people in Sri Lanka, talk to some people in, in Malaysia, and, and then write a document for them. Or in uh, some cases um, uh, were uh, sort of uh, written by a foreign expert who came in and just wrote a constitution for another country which was adopted. Um, so India is kind of unusual in that uh, right from the 1930s, actually following the Simon Commission, there was a demand 
that in, the constitution of India should be written by uh, elected constituent assembly of Indians, right? So the Congress party makes this demand in the 1930s, the communist parties make the demand. Um, and um, however, when independence comes, uh, you know, it comes at a moment of uh, complicated negotiations uh, with the British, uh, with the Muslim League, with the Second World War. Uh, and the assembly that is, that is elected is, is not one that's elected on universal franchise. It's an assembly that's uh, nominated from the provincial legislatures and the legislature themselves are uh, elected on a sort of 12 to 14% franchise. Um, so this sort of uh, 200, 300 member assembly is supposed to represent sort of the views of Indians as, as, as they go forward. Um, the Congress is, which dominates the assembly is very aware of this critique. And the critique is made on the first day of the assembly's proceedings itself by uh, interestingly, you know, both MR Jacker, who's sort of a sympathetic uh, to Hindu conservatives, uh, uh, as well as uh, figures like um, uh, Dr. Ambedkar, who is anything but, uh, who are basically saying, you know, how are you writing this when we haven't even settled on whether partition will happen or not? The Muslim League members aren't present. This is not an elected assembly. Um, but um, so keeping this in mind, the, the, the Congress tries to bring in a, a broad shade of opinion into the assembly itself. Uh, they're better at bringing in certain groups than others. So women are uh, represented uh, very much below their share of the population, but it is the largest number of women in any constitution-making body at that time, right? Uh, so more than Europe, more than, say, France, which was debating a constitution at the same time, more than Israel, more than Pakistan. Um, it's also, you know, it brings in uh, uh, Dalits, it brings in um, recognizing the fact that there are very few Muslim members initially. It sort of seeks to bring in various shades of Muslim leadership. Uh, it brings in groups that are generally underrepresented, like Parsis and Anglo-Indians. Um, and uh, they are, uh, there is a sort of constant awareness and, 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 and that, you know, the constitution we're writing is uh, not just one that's for the present, but for the future. So we have to anticipate and it has to be tested against the future. So uh, a lot of work earlier saw the constitution makes as, as, as a kind of work of very smart, uh, committed, benevolent um, leaders of the Congress. And, and the kind of major work on this is Granville Austin's um, uh, Indian constitution, uh, cornerstone of a nation, where he suggested just five or six men who kind of made the assembly work. And uh, recent work has sort of added to this. So, you know, you add, uh, say, Ambedkar or B.N. Rao or, you know, Mona Nazad uh, or maybe Jaipal Singh Munda or maybe the women in the assembly to this exercise. But it still sort of treats the constituent assembly itself as a kind of um, fixed body of benevolent elites. Um, so the work that I and my colleague Ornit Chani have been doing has really been trying to see that the constitution making body was not just uh, talking to each other, but was also in conversation with people outside. So it evoked a wide range of interest across the country. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people wrote to the assembly. In some cases, they got the assembly members to change their mind. In some cases, they didn't. Um, it was uh, people both sort of resisted things the constitution were doing, um, as well as sort of wanted more things included. In, and they did this politics outside the assembly as well, through protests, through electoral campaigns, um, through court cases in some hand. So. Um, so the, it's kind of sort of elite character legitimacy is built by the fact that it continued to be in interactions with, with, with all these groups. The second issue is about borrowing, right? So at the end of the assembly, uh, I think it's Hanumantaya, who's actually, I think, from Mysore, says, we expected the music of the Veena or the Sitar, and this is the music of the English band. Uh, even Ambedkar himself says this is just a kind of, you know, democratic top dressing or undemocratic society. These ideas are borrowed, the concepts are borrowed. Uh, but he later on also says that, you know, borrowing is an act of collective choice and um, borrowing is different from imposition, right? So it's, it's very different if, uh, just give an example, 
if someone tells you by uh, by law you have to speak in hindi as opposed to you deciding to speak in hindi uh, because it's something you want to do so uh, the idea was that they they weren't blindly borrowing structures of british rule or uh, irish recruitment of state policy or you know later on uh, kind of soviet ideas of duties of a citizen but they were borrowing because these models meant something to them and they often worked in very different ways from how they worked in their own places so a uh, direct principles of state policy in ireland have rarely been used in litigation or as a process of sort of making claims upon the state whereas in india in the 50s and 60s it was the biggest sort of basis on which the government was trying to sort of make law right so just because there is borrowing doesn't mean it is uh, alien or unoriginal so i think what i was trying to do in the book was to show at least in 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 one space that um um people who were not even part of the constitution making exercise so you know sabzi walas or or, or 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 sex workers um were still able to using the procedural clauses of the constitution sort of write themselves into the constitutional narrative and it's not that they succeeded in every time but that possibility remaining open um i think is one of the reasons that deepened um the relationship the indian constitution has with the people even though every individual was not involved with sort of drafting or making the constitution there was no referendum on the constitution after it was done well um so in while you're exploring these subjects you've broken down the book into four chapters the kind of scheme of the book is where in each chapter you are uh asking questions about the litigants and the uh, aggrieved person or community and uh, what is the context of uh, social and economic context in which they file this particular case and how it goes on what are the arguments that are made and so on so uh, throughout throughout the interview let's just break it down uh, chapter wise and with each case wise and just take it is uh, the first time when i was actually reading the book uh, when i was going through the first chapter i was like each chapter requires an interview in itself uh, but then i was able to like decide don't okay, okay these are the questions i really want to ask uh, so in in the first chapter you discuss about the litigation over the imposition of prohibition law particularly in the, in the case of bombay so for for the uh, for our listeners just give a background about the law of uh, bpa and you know how it was giving its sense of unchecked authority to uh, state agencies to uh, enforce those laws sometimes creating a menace for the people in bombay um thanks so much so maybe i'll give you uh, maybe a two minutes like primer into how the book is organized so um what i was really interested in in a way was to ask the hard question right like does the does the indian constitution make a difference and there are several people who say it doesn't uh both on the right and the left right so uh and i wanted to test this really against um areas which were new areas of regulation that the state was entering so of course it affects all kinds of life it affects criminal law it affects land things like that other people have looked at but i wanted to see here there are certain areas of life that the indian constitution was committed to changing reforming and transforming uh, and how do how does the constitution play out in those realms so prohibition interestingly is a direct principle of state policy and it, it is there in the constitution it is there in the constitution partly because uh, from the 1920s the congress party and and several other political groups had really campaigned for prohibition as governmental policy uh this seems to be a sort of uh you know odd issue to take up uh but it it was both strategic um and uh sort of a moral position strategic because uh, in colonial india uh revenues from the sale of alcohol went to the colonial state so if you think about uh gandhi's sort of salt campaign prohibition was just another way of saying by stopping the consumption of alcohol we are going to hurt the revenues of the colonial government 
uh, tied to this, of course, was the kind of moral question. So uh, Gandhi and others presented drinking as a, a foreign practice uh, brought in from the West. Uh, it was not a fact practice amongst ordinary Indians. And this is contestable. And uh, particularly Jaipal Singh Munda and the tribal members sort of angrily contest this in the assembly, but their voices are drowned out. Uh, they saw this as a site of Hindu-Muslim cooperation because, you know, it can bring religious groups together around this idea of not drinking. Uh, and it got a lot of support from the Indian women's movement because it is clear that, um, and even today, prohibition gets a lot of support from women because very often, um, the, I mean, very often um, alcohol is a cause of domestic violence. It's also alcohol addiction leads to a hurting of family income, right? So there is a, a powerful movement on it. And it's very effective in the 20s and 30s because what they do is they get out and picket liquor shops. Um, I found these wonderful anecdotes where women would just sort of wait outside the liquor shop see someone coming out with alcohol and then follow that person home and tell the family this person was buying alcohol. So it's trying to use this kind of moral pressure and boycott to stop it. Um, it takes, um, occasionally breaks into, um, and I think this is the complicated issue when we're doing things like this in a society that is often demarcated and organized around caste is that um, liquor selling, particularly in the Bombay presidency was um, sort of dominated by certain communities. Um, some castes had long histories of working of making and selling liquor. And there were groups like the Parsis that sort of um, controlled aspects of the liquor trade and for whom drinking was not a immoral position. Um, so sometimes these sort of took the form of like violence even against sort of Parsi-owned shops and, and stores. And from the 1930s, we see the Parsi community being very concerned about prohibition coming in and they keep appealing to say that this is a way of destroying the economic sort of position of the Parsis. Um, so, okay, so this goes into the constitution. Uh, it goes under the policy. There, there's very little opposition to it. And the opposition really comes from uh, either Parsi members or from uh, tribal members for whom who say that this is basically a kind of um, uh, majoritarian uh, approach towards drinking, but tribals drinking is an important part of their culture and religious life. Um, so one would assume something with such a broad consensus gets a lot of popular support. But what happens is in Bombay, which is under a series of fairly puritanical chief ministers at this time, um, most prominent being Muraji Desai, who was better known for drinking other things, um, he... Uh, they passed the Bombay Prohibition Act and they use, use it to greatly increase the police powers of the government and hire a lot of police just to police prohibition. And the difference between the BPA and, and other forms of regulation is it doesn't just criminalize the making and sale of alcohol, it criminalizes possession and consumption of alcohol as well. So what you're basically saying is that the police can arrest you if they think you might have consumed liquor, right? Which basically gives an enormous amount of power to a low level police, police official. And from what we see in the sources that this power was being used, um, people's houses were being broken into to be searched for alcohol, people being stopped on the streets and being searched. Uh, in many cases, one assumes this is a basis for uh, asking for a bribe um, rather than actually a conviction. So it creates these rent uh, seeking opportunities that are there. And very soon, a pop policy, which you think is a popular policy, a backbone of the national movement becomes tremendously unpopular publicly, right? There are jokes about it. Uh, people keep complaining about it. You see all these cartoons where prohibition is sort of being lampooned. Uh, and it becomes a kind of, uh, 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 you know, site for, for conflict. Um, uh, but the problem is that the public image of someone who, who wants to remove prohibition is that of a bad person, right? Like, only, and if you think of the word itself, right? Only the Sharabi wants to drink, right? Good people cannot go out and campaign for um, the right to drink. And the few people who did, who were like, look, we're losing so much revenue, were told, you're the khun ka paisa hai. This is just, you know, you're drinking away someone's blood. We should just give up this revenue. You are an immoral person. 
So this is the sort of moment where the chapter starts because you have a policy that is clearly unpopular and affecting a lot of people, but you don't have a public language in which you can counter this policy. So, so to talk about the uh, public language, which they how they use the language of the constitution to challenge this law and uh, to turn over prohibition, you talk about how active citizens, especially and like. Uh, the litigant himself, a Parsi, who uh, goes to the court challenging their right to consume alcohol as a right guaranteed by the constitution itself. So tell us a bit about the arguments that they were making in the court. So the deprovision goes into practice. Um, a journalist, he doesn't go up as a Parsi, he just goes up as a public-spirited citizen called uh, from Nusarvanji Balsana, says that the Bombay Prohibition Act violates his rights under the constitution. And he enumerates a bunch of them, right? So he says... Um, it violates his right to property because it's his alcohol, he can drink it. Um, it uh, violates his right to speech and liberty because the law uh, makes the encouragement to drink or to break, criticize prohibition punishable. But most influentially, he says it violates the right to equality because the prohibition regime worked with imposing prohibition for the majority of the population, but creating exemptions of certain categories. So if you were a foreigner, if you were a member of the Indian princely classes, or if you were an army officer, you had a license to drink. And this continues even today. So for example, if you are in Gujarat and uh, one of the few places where you are allowed to have a license to have alcohol is say in the cantonment areas, right? So uh, when he goes to court, uh, all of this starts playing out in the courtroom and it plays out to an enormous public audience. So there's sort of you know pictures of people gathering outside the high court. Um, a lot of leading lawyers today who were law students in Bombay would go and listen to these arguments. Uh, and they were basically saying that, um, okay, uh, if you think the army should get an exemption because they do very hard work, well, farmers and miners do incredibly hard work as well. Why can't they relax over alcohol in the evening? Or our freedom struggle was about stopping foreigners from having special privileges. Why do foreigners have special privileges today? So the high court gave it a very fair hearing and struck down several clauses. Uh, the government was outraged and uh, appealed to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court... Uh, even then was uh, usually a more conservative body than the high court. And it uh, upheld most of the law, except for a particular clause. They said that, look, under the constitution, you can only ban alcohol, which is meant to be drunk. You can't ban anything and everything that contains alcohol. Uh, so the lawyer said, you know, the petitioner, Mr. Valsara, opened his mouth to drink, but all he got was the uh, chance to have uh, medicated wine or like nail polish and these other products, right? So it seems that the government more or less staved off the challenge. But what happened as a result of this loophole is that when the police began arresting people on suspicion of having alcohol, they would just say, well, I just had a health tonic. You have to prove to me that I had alcohol that is prescribed and not something else that might just contain alcohol. And if you look at the newspapers, there's a sudden explosion in the manufacture of these health tonics, right? Um, which are sold as health tonics, but are basically meant to be held as alcohol. And so what I chart is basically how this becomes this continuous failure to actually punish anybody, not only um, uh, makes it impossible to enforce this provision. And, you know, they did manage to arrest several hundred thousand people in Bombay under these laws, but they kept being released by the courts because you can't actually prove anything against them. Uh, the chief minister, Bhai Chavan, finally said, you know, this, this inability to make the law work is actually bringing the law itself into disrepute. Um, and they liberalized the prohibition regime in Bombay. So, I mean, technically, Bombay still has prohibition, but it has very loose rules about how they're applicable. And there's a, there are a lot of permissions that are granted, granted for it. Um, and um, this is an interesting uh, uh, chapter also because it shows that um, one is that the courts were receptive to this kind of test case to 
test the validity of a legislation based on sort of one person's complaint, and that it allowed for a group that was otherwise didn't have a lot of a lot of political capital, like Parsis were a small anglicized elite. Um, the liquor trade was seen as a bad thing, but the constitution allowed them to appear before the court not as Parsis or as like liquor sellers. but as citizens with fundamental rights which were common to everyone right so they weren't only deciding on whether parties had fundamental rights but whether all citizens had a right not to be put into prison because the police smelt alcohol on their breath so it's sort of a way of thinking about new strategies and tactics yeah and and you also talk about uh, you know the public interest private interest and the parsi interest and you talk about how balsara did not have a, i mean there was not a lot of trail to uh, try and understand why balsara actually challenged uh this this prohibition in the court so what were the kind of uh you know um uh, kind of perspective that you were able to see as to why they were uh, was it purely because they wanted to i mean was it motivated by the idea that they wanted to protect the trade of uh, alcohol or was it because it, w- it was just that they wanted to enjoy a drink in the evening so it's hard to i mean this is partly where we run into a problem of archival evidence right so um i think in all the cases i've looked at it's very rarely have i been able to go find the original litigant and ask them what is it that they wanted to do um so you build on that by either drawing connections and and, and speculations and the fact that balsara was a journalist who wrote for a major parsi newspaper at that time uh newspapers were affected by prohibition because it sort of banned alcohol advertising in the paper uh so one can only sort of like show connections without making a clear causal argument but it is clear that almost everyone who appears in the court cases are parsis uh, uh, and it is a community that is affected so it is not surprising then that um, these interests sort of overlap and um, you know again the what the legal document shows you is what they want to appear as so it's hard to again read like into their sort of mental workings behind it but one can show a kind of ecosystem or political economy through which this is operating and suggests that these links are present even if they're not entirely evidenced uh i think this appears in the other chapters as well when you sort of see a community dominating a certain kind of um, challenge yeah so that is something that's key over all all your chapters some a theme that follows so in your second chapter you explore the challenges of the essential commodities act and the case of hari shankar bagla versus the state of mp so tell us about the act and how it was becoming a hurdle in the post colonial state for uh, economic reasons so and you know another way to think about the organization of the book is i was looking at sort of different aspects of daily life and which came under regulation so you know there's a chapter about food and one about drink one about sex and this is really about commodities and clothing so during the war there were major shortages um and the british government decided to use its wartime emergency powers to extend uh, the system of controls to control almost every aspect of the economy so commodity control laws uh, could set uh, how much you could of an item you could produce how much could you sell to an individual how much could you transport what the price would be and this was meant to be like a temporary wartime measure and it was it was again very unpopular i mean gandhi said this is like if i want two things one of which is uh, prohibition the second is uh, you know end to commodity controls right um and um what is surprising is that after independence despite its seeming unpopularity it's not dropped but is really taken up actively by the independent indian government and it's taken up because uh, they say well we were using these laws to fight against in a condition of war 
but we are in continuous war against poverty and undevelopment and to have a kind of planned economy going forward we need these controls these are these are sort of essential um and uh while one could argue that in certain uh, sectors uh maybe for like essential food stuff commodity controls were needed uh, by the late 40s they were expanded to everything including ballpoint pens right so uh and and the way things work is like to enforce this level of micro detail you need a lot of officials so again you have rent seeking and you have black markets uh so the way to respond to this is by in creating more and more criminal legislation which uh, doesn't even have the safeguards of ordinary legislation so this case involves uh, a marwari trader and his wife who are arrested for uh, carrying more cloth than they should have in their luggage and it builds on a whole range of other cases that uh, also have usually marwari traders who are being arrested for having more uh, or, or violating these regulations um and because the law is so draconian it's very hard for them to sort of get off under the ordinary law uh, but because this is a community with money and resources they start making this argument that um in a democratic country you cannot have these regulations being made by low level bureaucrats so they say look the official law lays down just very broad guidelines but all the basic regulations are being done by low level bureaucracy so we see the emergence of what we call administrative law a lot of um uh litigation that starts creating rules about how bureaucrats can exercise their um their discussion it cannot be arbitrary you must give the other side a hearing and because the law itself is flawed those become become the grounds of acquitting people who are arrested under them so the baglas are not successful but others following the baglas are enable to sort of escape criminal prosecution because they find a, a technical challenge in the making of the law itself uh this is sort of dry and 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 dull and you know most people don't like talking about this chapter because it's a lot of lot of technical rules but i think what i wanted to show is that um, a lot of what is seen as sort of boring mundane like this is not a story about like rights or about a community's identity this is about can a parliament delegate rule making power to a bureaucrat who is at level 4 in the state right but a, a lot of important um, questions of uh, community identity uh, economic life are decided through these sort of narrow and dry questions and sort of that's what i wanted to parse through the section um the other thing i do is again you know like the parsees we see that you know despite marwari's being a um uh, economically well off community um they were a community that was a target of popular discontent in the period and again a community that was difficult for them to act openly um or to win through say an electoral process right um because you can't go out and say you know our community's economic life is, depends on our ability to sort of sort of do this kind of work uh, so i traced through a lot of cultural representations how the marwari trader is shown as the enemy of the economy and how again the constitution allows a way for the trader to recast himself or herself as a unmarked citizen who's able to sort of make claims on behalf of all citizens well uh, you also go on to write about how the act exemplified the permit license quota raj uh, something that you say was uh, a feature that characterized the nehruvian status of economic regulation so how did this carry on and uh, how long did this entire process go on for uh, to you know ultimately end and uh, how did we like were these litigations playing a major role in uh, seeing the end of such a, a economic policy um so that's a really good question and i think one that is in some ways beyond the remit of this particular book um uh i mean we do know that the ambition of the independent indian state was to sort of reduce poverty bring about development and really transform economic relationships uh, nehru and his colleagues uh, you know all of them believed that 
this was best done through a strong centralized state planning mechanism. Um, but even um, um, people uh, who differed from it ideologically still continue to repose faith in the state as the one that was sort of arbitrating on economic decisions. So the question was not whether the state should do it or not, but how should the state do this? Um, uh, the permit license quotaraj has never really ended. Um, we still have versions of it today. Uh, what has changed is maybe the sectors which they affect. Um, so one could say, for example, um, it is perhaps easier to have, um, say, foreign direct investment in a uh, company now uh, with fewer permissions, but it is actually harder to give money to, say, a charity or an NGO in India, right? So, so the role played by intermediary bureaucrats continues to be the same, and it might just change the sectors in which they're affected. Uh, the Essential Commodities Act is still in force, um, and uh, some of the current uh, political questions in India recently, uh, so under the post the pandemic, it was used to uh, govern a certain number of medical supplies. Um, and some of the current uh, issues around farmers have also been tied to deregulation of foodstuffs under the Essential Commodities Act. So it very much remains in the background of how the Indian state works. Um, what the litigation did was it showed the ability of uh, groups to delay or stimmy the effect of the state. So it meant that the state couldn't just do something like this. It had to sort of uh, count, contend with uh, the ability of its policies being checked and slowed down upon, and in some cases reversed through the courts. But it didn't change the overall structure. And I think that's common across all the chapters. So in uh, none of the work are they really able to uh, remove an overarching democratically elected legislation, what they all managed to do is open up small spaces to survive, to exist, um, to delay. Um, so again, this is not a story of a dramatic revolutionary constitution, but really of something that provides and opens up certain kinds of spaces rather than you know batting for one side or the other very clearly. So what were the kind of arguments that were, uh, you know, put forth in the court by this particular, when they were trying to challenge uh, this particular act and kind of uh, make their way through the loopholes? So, I, 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 you know, I mean, it, it's, it's fairly technical uh, and, I, and I'll probably have to go back to the book to sort of walk us through it. But let me just briefly summarize, right? So the main contention was um, what is the power of the Indian parliament? Um, and the argument was that in Britain, uh, which did not have a constitution, parliament was supreme and sovereign, right? It could do a lot of things, uh, including delegating its power to um, uh, a lower ranking official. Uh, the argument was that because we have a written constitution, it's a republic, the parliament, power of the parliament is limited to what the constitution gives it and limited in the forms that it can exercise that power. So for example, if you want to pass a regulation, if, if so is the, is say the, rationing of ballpoint pens, something to be decided by uh, a bureaucrat sitting in um, the state uh, bureaucracy? Or is it a question that needs to be decided by legislature? And uh, who has, and, and in the process of deciding, does the other side have a chance to represent and make their claims? So what they basically contended was the overarching law, the Essential Commodities Act was too broad and too vague. And it allowed them to really mark anything and everything saying it was essential. So its powers had to be circumscribed and limited. And um, this is also sort of a time when most countries in the world trying to work out these questions. They were doing this in America and Britain and in India. And in the West, a lot of this control of power of the bureaucrats was done through legislation itself. So the US Congress or the British Parliament passed um, laws which controlled 
how much power bureaucrats had but in india this was done through a kind of firefighting within the courts so it was more judge made law that governed the rules of bureaucrats than done through parliament well, uh, yeah i mean i did find it a, a little technically heavier than than uh, at least the first chapter so it was kind of easing into uh, how, how it was going in so in the third chapter you talk about the case of mohammad hanif qureshi versus the state of bihar concerning clause uh, cause law to prohibitions and uh, it examines the transformation of political agitation over how co-protection and implement uh, and it came around with the implementation of the constitution so how it was taken uh, as as a cause within the making of, i mean by the making of the constitution itself so briefly tell us about how uh, the history of cow protection in the post colonial state and how it kind of was incorporated in the constitution itself as a directive from the bureau of state policy sure so um i mean this is i'm not going to go into the long debate here but um i think the two things we have to accept as um Uh, i mean they might sound contradictory but they are what our history is that there is a long history of uh, certain hindu groups and texts holding that the cow is a sacred animal and uh, this is also matched with uh, a range of rulers in medieval early modern india including some mukhal rulers um, and some non hindu hindu rulers issuing edicts for cow protection but this is also a, about an economy where cattle are a major form of uh, a major resource and once cattle ceases to be economic the cattle one of it, part of its value is the fact that it is consumed and eaten um not just by uh, by hindus and uh, other communities so it's it's not that these two things are are are, are mutually exclusive um we do know from the late 19th century cow slaughter becomes a site for political action so groups like the arya samaj in punjab Uh, launch a major count campaign to ban cow slaughter um and this campaign has is is complicated right so at one part of this this is of course around the question of cow slaughter but it's also operating at a time when uh, the colonial government makes certain kinds of politics difficult right so it says that you can't um, one of the few rights you have after the revolt of 1857 is queen victoria says your rights as british subjects to practice your religion will not be interfered with so if you make a claim in a political way saying that i want representation in delhi that claim can be crushed by the british but if you make a claim saying i want my religion whether it's islam hinduism or sikhism protected that's a claim that would at least get a hearing and we see stories of you know how there's a gathering that's meant meet to that's that's come together to uh, sign a petition for cow slaughter then signs a petition saying we want greater representation and turns into a, a say an early congress party meeting right so so in many ways the politics of early nationalism and the politics of cow protection are intertwined um it also be, becomes a way of creating a certain kind of identity which means pushing communities to change their practices to have a shared identity so there's a lot of stories of um particularly um uh, caste groups that worked with uh dead cattle or with which ate meat being sort of pressurized to make public commitments that they will not eat eat beef or they will not sell the cattle to someone who might sort of persecute them now in the colonial period this was matched of course through competition by uh, muslim political leadership saying it is our religious obligation to sacrifice the cow and it was centered on a kind of um, uh, you know uh, hadith which basically said that you need to sacrifice the cow in uh, commemorating abraham's uh, sort of uh, sacrifice of his son um 
And the British court sort of constantly kept balancing. They said, okay, well, Hindus claim it's sacred, but the Muslims claim the religious duty. So let's find ways to manage it. So they would say things like, you can have cow sacrifice, but you can't do it in public where someone else might see it. Or yes, you can have a ban in this particular region because there's been a long custom of doing it. But it really was a kind of system of competitive politics and of management. Uh, so when independence happens, uh, there are a couple of factors that complicate things. One is with partition, uh, a lot of the visible uh, Muslim political leadership in India uh, leaves or finds it, its voice restricted, right? Because it's the, the communities that stayed behind are not looking to... Um, are looking to be accommodated rather than go into conflict with, with the Congress party. Um, secondly, uh, this long-standing campaign uh, basically says that, okay, what now we've always worked for car protection, India has become independent, why aren't we doing car protection now? And while there's a broad commitment to it, uh, Gandhi, for instance, is one of the earliest proponents of car protection. Um, Gandhi firmly believes that you can't do this through a law. Uh, this has to be done by changing people's views. You can't sort of arbitrarily... Uh, you know, he said it's akin to like breaking temples in Pakistan, that you can't have this kind of imposition through law. Uh, so there's no mention of car protection in the original constitution. And the reason why it comes in is because there's a sort of in, almost insurgent campaign of letter writing and petitioning, pushing figures like Rajendra Prasad to Nehru to Gandhi to bring it into the constitution. And it's moved by an amendment by certain members. And it was originally coming in as a fundamental right. But, and this is sort of where the assembly records are partial. We see that one, one afternoon, they're talking about his fundamental right. The next afternoon, they come in and say, I talked to Dr. Ambedkar, and now it's going to be a director principle of state policy, and it's going to tie it to the question of agriculture, improving, improving agriculture in the country. Um, and this also shows how political languages work, right? So why was there an investment in cow protection? Of course, it's because some texts say the cow is holy, but it's also because a lot of people said, look, rationally and scientifically, the cow is an important um, unit for the agrarian economy. So... If you don't want to, so, okay, here again is a question of like, do you read intention or do you read this speech for what it is, right? So um, someone says that we want car protection because it is necessary for scientific purposes in growing the agricultural economy. Are they saying it because it's a um, cover for protecting Hindu interests or are they saying it because they genuinely believe it? Or is, or, or as many Hindus believe the cow is protected because Hinduism is scientific and it recognizes the value that the cow has to the economy. So, Without going into any of these motives, um, there is a clause in the constitution which says that uh, you can have the state shall aim towards prohibiting cattle slaughter in the interests of, and it puts in these wording in interest, which is about improving um, animal husbandry and um, uh, the economy. Um, so these laws get passed uh, very similar to what, what is now happening across most of the states in North India by Congress party governments. Uh, and surprisingly, uh, there is not a lot of objection to this in the legislature. So senior Muslim political leaders um, in the UP and elsewhere sign on to these laws. And um, the challenge really comes uh, in a very surprising way in this case from Muhammad Hanif Qureshi. And, and what I talk about in the book is how um, the challenge is uh, not just by an individual, but by almost 3,000 um, men who identify as members of the Qureshi community from several uh, cities and villages across of North India. The Qureshi case is, 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 is one that is much commented upon. It's the longest judgment of the Supreme Court when it came out. Uh, um, it was, and it's often been talked about uh, by lawyers as, look, it's a kind of win for majoritarianism because what the court does, it says that, look, we have to balance interests. So does, so if, if, if this is about Muslim freedom of religion, does Islam require um, 
mandatorily that the cow be sacrificed. And they very helpfully read the Quran and the Hadiths and said, look, it gives you the option of sacrificing um, a camel or seven goats instead of a cow. So one can't say it's compulsory. And in any case, um, you can have a restriction in the interests of the national economy. And, you know, in, in general interest, um, this is a uh, 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 cow protection is clearly states the thought is a good thing. And they also said that, uh, you know, yes, also Hinduism has all these clauses um, which uh, require, show how the cow has to be suspected, respected and, and, and preserved. So it's, all, it's really, really thought about as a story of a kind of loss for minority rights. Uh, but this is where reading the court case itself becomes interesting. So you find that the Qureshis are totally uninterested in making a religious argument here. In fact, they make sort of four arguments and only the fourth one is a religious one. It's almost like, by the way, and they don't provide any evidence. The court complains. It's like, you know, on the one side, we had, you know, opinions of pandits and the Hindu lawyers brought in like textbooks, but the Muslims didn't bring in the Quran or any Malvi or give us any advice. Right? Um, so they're not interested in making the claim. And, and to do this, you have to understand who the Quraysh community, uh, who, who, who are the Quraysh community. And um, I think it goes to the fact that we don't, we always tend to look at Indian society as, you know, one way of organizing is around religion and one way of organizing around caste without recognizing that they actually work together. So the Qureshis are a um, professional caste group within South Asian Muslims who are engaged with the meat trade. Um, and uh, because of the way caste works, you know, the Qureshis are very clear that we work on cows and buffaloes as opposed to other castes that work on chickens or goats, right? So you can't just switch from one to the other because that's how the work has been divided up. Uh, so the Qureshi, this is not really about religion. It's really about their right to just practice their trader profession. And they show that it's not just sort of butchery, but it's leather work. It's uh, gut, doing things with guts. It's doing things with various parts of, of, of cattle. Um, and um, they, they, yeah, they try that argument, but that argument gets shut down because the court says, well, professions can be restricted in national interest. You know, this is not, and the constitution says it's not an absolute right. There are limitations you can have on it. But they're able to make one very successful argument. They're able to argue that an absolute ban on cow slaughter is actually harmful to the national economy. It's harmful to the scientific development of animal husbandry, and it's harmful to cows. And they do this using a series of reports produced by the government itself, which shows, for example, um, if you have an absolute ban, um, older uneconomic cattle uh, are either sort of abandoned by the farmers because they can't maintain them, uh, which means they go on a rampage, they destroy crops, um, they affect other farmers, or uh, they are to be maintained by the government and charity. And the math was the cost of maintaining a cow was higher than what the government was spending on primary education for children, right? So it poses a kind of very uh, unequal cost. And, and, and so the court was receptive and said, look, it's quite clear that an absolute ban is uh, not meeting the objects laid out under Article 48. Right? Uh, because at a certain point of time, a cow is uneconomic and therefore cannot be forced to be maintained at state or individual's expense. And uh, I, we now know that the cow protection groups were very upset with the judgment precisely for this region, reason, because they saw this as allowed for the, a, a kind of space for older cattle to, be, um, to, to still be slaughtered. <clears throat> and there was like a 40-year campaign of litigation until 2005 when they convinced the court that the cow is always economic, um, even after um, it reaches a certain age. But at that moment, uh, it opened up a space for Qureshi community to continue their work. And there are a series of cases following that where the Qureshi community is able to, even when they're targeted by the police, is able to use this 
to show that you know what they were doing is permitted under the constitutional order yeah uh, also i wanted to ask i mean you throughout the book you also talk about how these communities in particular were strengthened by this uh, language of going to the courts and uh, challenging these laws uh, but interestingly you also mentioned that the court records are there any mentions of dalits challenging such laws and in, in the court and is that something you could say is a not uh, is a community they are not strengthened enough to represent themselves at Uh, so this is a good question so uh, i have a line in the book which i later on realized is doing a, doing a lot more work than a line should which is that who are the people who appear in these records um, and while they range from a range of groups these are primarily urban there are almost no dalits or tribals unless they appear as people who have been arrested uh, by the police right so this is a, a an indictment given that this is a largely agrarian economy um, most people live in villages so it's clear that this conversation is not happening there so there are two or three things uh, i think one should keep in mind uh, firstly that um, yes for example peasants don't appear in these records in large numbers but that's also because one uh, electoral franchise actually gives farmers more voting power than say um, parsis or qureshis um, there the majority of the country uh, almost all political parties are seeking to get uh, farmers to buy into their program so they exercise some of their choices through the election process and many of these groups are unable to make their voice heard through elections um secondly um that the states uh, in volmut in everyday life is more in urban areas than in rural areas at this at the, in the 1950s right so the idea of someone showing up and asking you whether you consumed alcohol or not is, is going to happen in bombay very easily is not going to happen in rural maharashtra very much right so it's not surprising that these conflicts play out often in um urban areas um the last one is that you know but that's not static so if you look at what happens and how groups engage with the constitution over a period of time from the 1970s onwards um dalit groups are they don't always go to court but they take the constitution as a public political resource whether representing it in statutory whether sort of uh, mobilizing to protect the idea of reservations in the constitution um and increasingly also engaging litigation to um um secure uh, rights and spaces but this happens a couple of decades after some of the phenomena that i study similarly with tribal areas if you think of what the patalgadi movement in india right now is doing is really using a kind of constitutional promise to argue for autonomy against the state uh, and these are sites which were in some ways written out of the constitution because um uh, these were areas that were seen as scheduled they didn't have elections initially they were sort of run by nominated councils but even here we see a deepening of the area of the constitution but again later than the period that i look at um so i think the story here really is and if you want to compare this to other spaces um there are countries and polities where groups that are excluded see no future in the current constitution right they can the argument, argument could be that this constitution did not make room for us it has nothing to do with us we will seek to change it or or, or leave and um uh the other ways where yes we might not have participated or this might not have um been imagined uh, as a space for us when it came up but we can see ourselves using it and making it our space and i think it's you know uh, to credit to the indian constitution that it did um, i mean in contrast to say the american one um at its moment of founding uh make serious commitments and promises to to dalit groups to women um and to uh, other castes and communities that have been historically deprived and these groups have taken on these uh, promises 
at various points of time and acted on them. So th- that was like my major question is how do we see the question of these uh, groups that are, uh, I mean, as, as you mentioned, they're like these elite and urban groups. And But how do we see the questions of these marginalized other groups, uh, mostly uh, economic and socially marginalized groups being represented and their access to court and uh, court procedures? So mm-hmm. moving on to chapter four, uh, you take up the case of uh, Husna Bai versus the state of UP. Uh, where she files the arrest uh, petition under the Act 226 of the Constitution, challenging the validity of the suppression of Immoral Trafficking Act of 1956. So, I mean, uh, very conveniently termed Sita. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, the Act of Sita and uh, uh, the case of Usnabai and how did it gain so much popularity? Uh, okay, there are three really big questions. So I'll try to be quick with them. Um, so, I mean, the interesting question to think about is why is the Indian Constitution having a clause to deal with trafficking in women and prohibition, right? And I think the credit for this really has to go to a very active Indian women's movement, uh, which in 1945 was quite clear that independence cannot just mean formal independence, it has to mean something substantive. So, for instance, uh, women members of the assembly insisted that uh, equality cannot just be men and women are equal, you have to have special provisions for women recognizing kind of historic uh, disadvantages that they operate under. So this is in contrast to the US where the reading of equality is just formal. So if you had something that is only for women, it could be struck down, right? So in India allows for a, for a broader, broader vision. Uh, many of the women who were in the assembly were involved for many years with uh, working with women who had been trafficked into the sex trade. Uh, they were also involved with um, sort of the violence faced by women during the partition. And many of them were involved in recovering women who had been abducted during the partition violence. So, so they, they were very clear that the constitutional promise has to promise freedom, not just sub- formally, but substantively to groups that had been facing historic disadvantage. So here the analogy to prostitution is to slavery, is to other kinds of indenture and trafficking. Um, they were the force behind the CETA Act. I mean, the government was really not interested in passing it. But uh, there is a group of women members uh, of parliament across political parties who really work in lobbying the home minister to pass this law. And while prostitution has always been regulated by the state from the late 19th century, earlier the laws were mostly concerned with spreading of venereal disease and maintaining like uh, a law and order question, right? Whereas the new law was uh, supposed to have been governed with not with a concern for the women in the profession seeking not to punish them, but to rescue and rehabilitate them. Which is why many of them are shocked that the day the law goes into force, uh, Husnabai and other women across the country in, involved in the sex trade go to court and challenge the law. Okay, so um, the, the challenge basically uh, is interesting because you know, um, uh, in the past when sex workers had been prosecuted or uh, faced the brute of the law, they would do a bunch of things um, whether it would be sort of physically leaving those neighborhoods, engage in bribery and evade the gaze of the state, or argue that they are technically not what the law describes as a common prostitute. They just happen to have some uh, sexual relations outside marriage, but that is not their main occupation. They are singers, they're musicians, they're something else. So in this case, it's interesting that Husnabai um, basically tells the court she's a prostitute and then says it's her profession and her profession is protected under the constitution. She's also someone who the state doesn't know, but she sort of calls the state to look upon her by naming the central government and the state government also as parties. And she says two powerful things. One is that, you know, this is a profession. Uh, She uses this to maintain her elderly parents and a younger brother. And by uh, 
stopping her from working uh, if a state removes her earnings then it should compensate her for lost earning because the welfare state um uh, secondly she argues that under the law the magistrate is able to remove someone from a neighborhood if he thinks of them as a uh, bad presence and the law does not uh, it violates equality it violates the right to move across the country it doesn't give her a right to be heard by the magistrate so the case itself legally is is kind of uneventful um the court says well her arguments have some grain of power in them but since she has not been evicted from a house she has not been prosecuted her rights are not affected so i am not going to make any ruling in this case uh but we see that because this is the first case on how to interpret the ceta um all the kind of handbooks and textbooks written for lawyers on the ceta act has this case in the in in the text so when other women face the same problem they turn to this strategy and make this argument you you say in your book that uh you know this episode challenges a common place knowledge uh that the everyday practice of citizenship excluded prostitutes from the domain of civil society and how she was able to challenge this in the court saying that like you mean acknowledging it as her profession as you said yeah no thanks actually help me um talk about uh my element of discovery right so i i knew i wanted to talk about gender and the constitution uh and i expected to find cases that would either deal with um some aspect of marriage or family law which was being reformed at this time or maybe some aspect of uh the partition and the recovery of abducted women uh i didn't expect to find this this case and i didn't expect to find this case to be a subject of so much correspondence in the archive um uh, it's the only file which i first found in the state archives and could then find in the supreme court most of the things work the other way around um and uh the reason for this is that it causes one it caused deep anxiety uh amongst uh both bureaucrats but also the women politicians who were engaged in passing the law uh and it caused anxiety because uh in a way independence said that you know there would be freedom and 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 these new women politicians were seeking to represent the best interests of indian women and you suddenly had this voice of this woman whose interests were protected by the government saying that this does not work for me right and uh, there's a sort of uh, quite a sad letter that durga bai deshmukh writes to uh, the home minister saying you know if this continues he must need to amend the constitution and restrict the rights of prostitutes from uh, under constitution because clearly they don't know what's best for themselves right they're acting against their interests they've also taken aback because this is not just us i i don't think this is a single coordinated single action uh, by hosta bai the day she files the case very similar cases are filed in delhi uh, and over the next few months the cases filed in bombay in pune in hyderabad in malaya kotla uh and there's also the formation of unions of the wives and dancing girls across the country who are engaging in public protests standing outside parliament demonstrating demanding their rights uh to practice sex work um and there's sort of these police reports of how money is being collected from red light areas to launch a legal challenge so this is not an isolated woman who sort of suddenly made aware of her rights it's clearly a community that is trying to work to protect what it thinks of as its own interests and challenging the right of um uh sort of newly elected independent elites to sort of speak for them so what is the kind of insight that does that give into the relation between um you know post colonial constitutional rights and women uh, as as you also mentioned where uh, durga bai uh, rights and uh she, you you say that durga bai deshmukh stated that she was deeply concerned to hear that the beggar and the prostitute have asserted their right uh under our constitution to carry out their ancient professions 
So it's kind of like two part question as to uh, what does it give an insight into how women fought, fought for uh, and what were they fighting for and the people who they were fighting for but were not willing to uh, you know acknowledge that okay that fight is for us and also at the same time that uh, they saw that their uh, you know argument to practice their profession was kind of an encroachment on the other people's to insist on their own rights as women so th- th- thanks so much so I, i think that at, at heart this is a question in every chapter right which is what did freedom mean uh, and how would the promises and dreams of freedom be achieved through more mundane things like rules and regulations right and, and actually be implemented so clearly uh, a lot of the early national leaders are, are quite committed to both uh, uh freedom meaning liberty for all people but also freedom um meaning equality amongst gender uh and i think um the issue happens is when do you start uh, achieving this as a concrete end through law and especially through relying on criminal law right so several of the legislators here were well intentioned uh but they saw that the sex workers were groups that could not speak or know what is in their best interests and they sort of position themselves that because these women can't speak for themselves and on the best interests we will speak on their behalf and the court case shows this moment of like challenge where the women appear and they sort of speak for themselves they also challenge the narrative around sex work right so sex work is seen as an unproductive activity it's seen as a uh, sign of decadence it's marked in the census and on the list of unproductive occupations but the sex worker here sort of asserts she's the primary uh, owner of the family uh she's supporting her family members uh she also argues that because she and her sister both do this their home is now designated brothel and her parents and her younger brother are marked as criminals because they live off the earnings of prostitution so this challenges the idea of how uh a certain group uh, how the how uh the early group of women leaders sort of conceptualized sex work uh it also shows that um you know um there independence opens up multiple ways in which conversations can happen uh, these don't only happen through groups uh, showing their preferences during an election it happens through a continuous uh, system of dialogue between state and society and the courtroom forces uh, allows these women like husna bai to force the state to come and explain itself you know before the courts and in the end as i show uh, the sex workers lose right eventually the supreme court says that the court you know it is a profession but your rights can be restricted and will be restricted in the greater interest of society but it doesn't take away the power of claiming this is a right so even after they lose in court in the 60s sex workers unions um, through the 70s 80s and 90s continue to assert that they have a uh, right to practice sex work under article 19 right so the meaning and understanding of the constitution is not just controlled by the language of judges they have a kind of life um, outside as well So tell us a bit about uh, what kind of um, attraction or kind of uh, you know narrative that this case uh, gets in in popular medium where people are following the case and uh, how is it about? So there isn't again one of the challenges. Uh, I mean, there is what I found in the case is uh, uh, some coverage in newspapers, um, a lot of correspondence between the social workers, policemen, and bureaucrats. Like, oh, this case has happened. we should brace ourselves more will come how do we respond to this uh, and the suggestions are sometimes quite alarming right so uh, the women's movement says that prostitutes should never get bail um, we should put them into um, uh, women's homes um, they create this idea thankfully is not implemented 
which is this idea of identifying women who are in moral danger. So, you know, uh, there are women who are engaged in prostitution, but there are women who could enter prostitution. And before they enter it, remove them from yeah. the, you know, their home, their street, put them into a rehabilitation home. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a complicated thing to do. So um, one of the sources I used was uh, something called the uh, Report on Social and Moral Hygiene, which was done by many of these early feminist scholars. And they interviewed a range of uh, sex workers across the country. And, and one encounter they describe is, um, uh, you know, they, they try to tell the women that you need to give up this work and we'll train you to sort of weave baskets and do embroidery. And the woman said, you know, like I would make only so much money by doing embroidery, I make a lot more money doing this. So uh, why should I switch, right? Or, um, uh, so I think uh, this opens up a couple of things. One is that the, the term prostitute itself is a kind of colonial invention. It's used to describe a whole range of women who don't fall into a traditional idea of a, uh, a certain kind of family. So everyone from, um, and doesn't recognize that there are of course women who are being trafficked and being forced into it against their will and, and compulsion. But there are other situations where women engage with it on other terms. Uh, and applying the same method and situation to all the women often causes violence against the women themselves, right? When they are um, taken away from their families, uh, put into a home, very often the home is not well run. Um, they're in, in, uh, you know, instead of providing them a safe workplace, you're reducing their um, uh, economic uh, earnings, you're also forcing them to go underground rather than, you know, getting the protection of the state as they go about their work. So I, I think it opens up a lot of debates around sex work that continue till, till today. Uh, but uh, these are debates that <clears throat> ordinarily you could not force the elite groups to respond to you, but the courtroom allows them or forces them to have that conversation uh, publicly. The best... Um, Cultural memory of this is actually this film called Mandi, which was made, uh, I think, by, by Sham Benegal in the 1980s. Um, it stars uh, Smita Patil and Shabana Azmi. Uh, but Mandi was based on a short story written in the late um, uh, 1930s, early 40s by, I think, uh, author called Ghulam Hussain. Um, and the story really is um, of this uh, brothel in the middle of a town and an attempt by these new uh, Congress elected members to say that this is a polluting thing, you have to remove it. And, you know, eventually the brothel is moved into the, into the forest. But what happens is the town itself starts building itself around the brothel. So there's a kind of relationship between sex work and commercial life. Uh, and the film is really a evocative uh, film because it shows um, not just the kind of... Uh, uh, fairly complex lives women in sex work lead, but also the sort of almost hypocrisies and violence committed by those who are seeking to rescue uh, women from this work, right? So it complicates both the idea of rescue and the idea of, 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 of coercion. Okay, um, so I think that brings us to the end of discussing your chapters. What a couple of questions around the book. Um, just, just the relevance of, okay, sure. So I just wanted to ask about, uh, you know, the trust in the courts uh, has, uh, would you say that it has reduced over the period of time or has it changed? Would do minorities uh, feel safe going to courts and court procedures and things of that sort? Is it still the people's constitution? Right. So I, I want to make an exception, this distinction here between um, ordinary legal procedures and constitutional courts and constitutional procedures. Okay. And I think I'm quite clear um, right from the beginning that nobody from any community enjoys going to court in India. 
if you if you think of ordinary legal procedures and if you look at the figures levels of litigation civil litigation which is um, suing other individuals or trying to settle disputes with other citizens uh, is rarely done through uh, through courts right uh, but what so and they actually fall the rates of civil litigation falls from the 1920s till today what we do see going up is uh, cases where the state is the party on one side so you see people are less inclined to take other individuals to court but you are inclined to take the state to court because one of the few spaces where you can actually engage with the state and the state is entering new areas of life um it's hard to measure what kind of trust in courts existed over time uh we have some studies from the late 1990s and early 2000s which suggest that there is a greater degree of public trust in the courts than in the parliament or um the bureaucracy it also suggests that uh, the courts get much more media coverage than the other wings of the government so we can't measure how it's changed because we don't have a sense of like what the measures were before but it's clear that um some of the power um that the courts had earlier was especially in the cases i look at writ petitions was to give many of these cases an early hearing uh these were matters that would be heard over extended periods of time um through ordinary litigation or through the bureaucracy but they were getting attention in the court process uh and there has been a lot of public critique today about how it's not clear why the courts hear some cases early and delay on some cases even in important uh constitutional matters like say electoral bonds um secondly um i think um what the courts in the in the early days did were they were um um quite they always left the final questions often open uh, left it as a continuing issue allowed parties to to feel that the matter wasn't settled they could come back and and sort of reiterate their claim um pradhan mehta calls it a promise of uncertainty uh and uh, some people believe that on certain questions that promise of uncertainty is is gone for the wrong reasons today uh this is again a longer conversation uh perhaps beyond the limit of the book itself um the final thing i want to say is that i think in the 50s the courts were very careful and recognized the need to build legitimacy um the judges of most of our courts had been appointed by the british and if you were appointed a judge by the british it probably meant you were not a raging nationalist to begin with right yet the courts built their credibility in the 50s because they showed that they could act as defending the values in the constitution even against the government that wrote it themselves uh it showed that they could give uh, at least a fair hearing if not always a judgment in favor uh and this was done because the judges themselves were very aware of their need to build legitimacy in this newly independent country vis-a-vis both the government but also vis-a-vis um um the people um and we see a moment of failure which is the emergency and post the emergency the judges take a very active engagement in rebuilding the legitimacy perhaps by pushing public investigation um uh to sort of uh recognize that there have there's been a loss of faith in the public and one hopes that uh this is something that continues and is sustained within the indian judiciary today well um also before we conclude uh, discussing on the book uh one major thing that i wanted to ask you also mentioned in the introduction hey your book or your work uh diverges from uh, what you would say a conventional methodological uh 
uh, aspect when it comes to approaching understanding constitution and how it influenced uh, lives. So can you tell tell us a bit about how you made this met, uh, methodological shift to try and uh, what was the kind of approach you took into writing the book? How was it different? Right. So maybe I can just maybe outline what other approaches are, right? So I think for most lawyers, as I said earlier, uh, the real question is to sort of find uh, a set of rules that are useful today. So you read the past through the lens of what you need to do in the present, right? So you're distilling like what can be used in the legal system, what are the principles and presence that can be drawn upon. Um, secondly, for uh, I think particularly for political scientists, um, uh, a lot of understanding constitutions is trying to understand institutional design, right? Or the wording of the constitution itself. Uh, did it make a difference that they used X or Y? Did it make a difference that they had like 11 judges as opposed to nine, so many veto powers or not? Uh, which is trying to again find some kind of like um, uh, generalizable formula about what makes makes it work or not. Uh, the third is a kind of like more journalistic, maybe uh, older historical approach, which wants to sort of know uh, what was the law at that point of time. You know, let's try and recover image of that. So I, I think I'm interested in knowing what law was in the past, but not um, uh, just the law as it appeared in the books or in judgments, but uh, sort of how people uh, understood, not understood what the law was and how they use that knowledge as they go around their everyday lives, whether it's a judge or it's a vegetable seller, right? What is their understanding of the system and how does it shape what they do? And this is not just about going to court. It's also about carrying this idea of the law as you do have other kinds of transactions, right? So uh, if you rent out your house to a tenant, what is your agreement with the tenant on, right? What and it's shaped by your knowledge of what is possible or what is not possible, whether you can afford to go to court later on or not. Or if you conduct a marriage ceremony, what do you sort of do in the ceremony? Uh, I'm interested in the, in the relationship between sort of both the formal legal process and the kind of informal process. Um, just to give you an example, some of my early work was on um, uh, Muslim law in uh, the 1920s and 30s. And um, to cut a long story short, uh, a lot of the... Uh, um, earlier debate was about whether uh, Hanafi law allowed women the right to ask for khula. And uh, many of the jurists had decided that it did not, right? So if you were uh, someone who identified as a part of the Hanafi school, uh, and you're a woman who wanted to have to leave a marriage situation, what were your options if it wasn't in the Nikanama itself? And then the only option at that point of time was that if you converted out of Islam. Um, so we see a, 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 a kind of panic, particularly among the ulama, that in the 1920s, there are a number of, vastly exaggerated number, but there are some cases of women who are converting out of Islam, leaving their marriages, then reconverting back to Islam and marrying someone else. But this panic pushes uh, figures like Maulana Ashraf Ali Yathanvi to sort of like correspond with um, um, figures in Egypt. Uh, to work with uh, Indian women's groups, uh, to work with liberal politicians, and then pass something like the Resolution of Muslim Marriages Act, which changes uh, Hanafi law to bring in the prospect of a uh, uh, judge-given divorce to Muslim women, right? So if you just study the making of the law itself, you don't get this other background. If you just study the kind of social history of, 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 of what the ulama is saying, you won't get this. If you just look at textbooks, you won't get this. You have to piece it all together to see how certain women, when they were, had their backs to the wall, were able to innovate a strategy and how that strategy then pushed changes in formal law. So really trying to think of uh, law as a dynamic system that is not read only through the courtroom, only through textbooks, only through legislation, but a kind of um, world of social interaction and meaning.
So for someone who uh, aspires to uh, explore the regions of legal history uh, in, in these contexts, what would you suggest? Where would someone uh, start? Or, or what do you think that one should concentrate or look or read? Wow, that's a, that's a big question. So um, I, I mean, there doesn't exist a textbook that I could recommend sort of, uh, you know, as, as a starting point. Um, there are a couple of places that, that I think are good places to start. Um, the first is to sort of pick an idea or aspect of law that interests you, right? It's a, it's a broad field. It's everything from, um, uh, you know, how bank checks work and bounce to insurance policies, to marriage, to uh, questions of like freedom of speech and expression. And, and then start looking through um, what is the kind of history of that regulation in the region interested in. And one of the good things about um, the pandemic has been, has been a digitizing of a large number of legal history materials by the Central Secretariat Library, by the National Archives that are available for a kind of textual search through. Uh, so I think um, uh, it's easier to think of this as a specific area in law rather than law as a whole, but uh, the nature and because many of those questions are important for law today, they are perhaps better preserved and disseminated uh, online than other aspects of historical research even. Now, I, I was just curious because if someone wants to uh, say explore these regions and through these perspectives and narratives, uh, what would uh, say a certain book or certain kind of uh, work that you would suggest that one uh, might follow uh, let, let's just, for example, take constitutional legal history and the, uh, you know, the procedure with which constitution was made. Sure. I mean, I think a great starting point, of course, is uh, Granville Austin's um, you know, classic book. And I think you read that alongside, there's a famous review by Upendra Bakshi critiquing the book. The review is almost as long as the book itself. Uh, and that shows you like what Austin misses or doesn't miss. Um, uh, that's just about the making of the constitution. Um, um, for example, the work I did, uh, I looked at a very small slice of materials, but there are vast areas of, of research that are still open. What, what is your upcoming work? What are you currently working on? What is your upcoming work about? Okay, so I'm, I'm doing a couple of things. The first is I'm working with a scholar, uh, Onit Chani, on um, trying to re-look at the making of the constitution uh, in, in sort of different ways, uh, <laughs> particularly looking at what is happening outside the constitutional assembly, not just inside the assembly in the debates. And the second is a longer project, which really looks at the role of lawyers and decolonization, uh, not just in India, but across the British Empire. Um, and the kind of India connection there is that, uh, and this sort of is, a, is something that I pick up in the book, but I don't really explore. Uh, India has the world's second largest number of lawyers in 1950. And if you start looking at lots of British colonies, particularly East Africa, South Africa, and Southeast Asia, uh, the majority, a significant part of the legal profession are people of Indian origins. So I'm trying to think of um, the role played by Indian, Indian diaspora lawyers uh, as these regions move towards independence and beyond independence. So I'm sort of following a group of uh, between eight to 12 lawyers in these periods and trying to tell a story of decolonization by following their legal careers. Okay, so, that, that sounds wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. I think this brings us to the end of the yeah, Thank you so absolutely. much. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining today's conversation. If you enjoyed our conversation and are looking forward to listen to more, please consider subscribing and following us on all social media platforms where you will be updated about our upcoming interviews in the series of Kuftagu. Now, if you want to look out for more information on colonial Indian history or Indian history in general, you can reach out on our website www.indiacolonize.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time. Stay safe, stay curious.